to Luke chapter 8. It's going to be on 562 in the Bible around you. If you don't have one uh, with you, grab that. You'll, we're going to be going through quite a bit of Scripture, uh, so it'll be more, by far more beneficial to uh, be looking at um, the Holy Bible rather than just li- listening uh, to what I have to say. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Brushy Bill Roberts? Anybody ever heard of Brushy Bill? I thought it might go like that. Um, Brother Bill Roberts is a guy who claimed, I don't know, uh, maybe in the four, 30s or 40s, he claimed that he was actually Billy the Kid, um, that, that Pat Garrett had not killed Billy the Kid and him um, long ago. He'd actually killed another guy, and they'd pawned off the body as if it was Billy the Kid. And so Brushy Bill said, hey, I'm, I'm Billy the Kid. And there's never been any uh, DNA t- testing uh, done. So, you know, there's some things that kind of look that way, some things that definitely don't look that way, but... but these ideas and these stories about who people are, are fascinate us. Uh, even down to like kids' movies, several years ago there was a, a movie put out called Anastasia. And it was the, a movie that told the story of a lady who claimed um, that she was one of the daughters of the Russian czars uh, before, like when the revolution, when the communists took over and they massacred um, the, the czar's family and murdered all of them. Um, she claimed that, you know, she had gotten away, she had escaped, or had been, and they, they had not killed her, and so she eventually made it to the U.S. and claimed, hey, I am one of the descendants, um, and uh, that one was, you know, just made into a movie. Again, don't think that one may have been true or not, but just the stories of who someone is, who, who are they really, are, are stories that, that fascinate us. And they're, they're questions that we have to ask. Who is this person? And when you come to the Scriptures, that's one of the driving um, ideas behind the book of Luke. Luke is seeking to answer the question of who is Jesus? He's writing this book to a guy named Theophilus, and he's trying to give him, he's giving him an orderly account so that he might have certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he's laying all of this stuff out, and, and he's answering this question of, of who is this? As a matter of fact, in the text that, that Sarah just read, and we're going to be looking at this morning, the disciples ask that. Who then is this that the winds and the waves obey him? And so that's really what we're going to be trying to answer this morning is, is who is Jesus? Who is he? Okay, everybody's got an answer on who they think Jesus is. But what we have an opportunity to do this morning is to, 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 to put away what you know, people thousands of years removed from Jesus say He is and just see who Jesus says He is. And for those of you in here, who my, my, my friends who aren't uh, believers, notice we're not going to be talking about what Paul thought about Jesus. We're not going to be talking about uh, what a creed said about Jesus hundreds of years later as if they suddenly invented deity and placed that on Him. We're just going to see what Jesus is displaying about himself. Jesus has already repeatedly, as we've gone thus far, claimed to be God, claimed that he has the right to forgive, and they've labeled him as a blasphemer because of that. It's a, humanly speaking, it's what ultimately gets him killed because he's claiming to be God. And this morning, what we're going to see is four major miracles where he's not just talking the talk, but he's walking the walk. He's proving that he is God in the flesh. To the point that it's going to make his disciples just almost be like, holy smokes, who, who, 
our rabbi is the son of God. Like, if they haven't gotten it thus far, they, they see this. Who then is this guy who speaks? And the winds and the waves obey him. And so, as I was laying out this, I contemplated, you know, should I do, I'm going to be looking at four miracles, should I do a sermon on each of the miracles? But they're all rolling up to tell the same point, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that He is the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And so we're going to lump them all this morning and make our way through them. And we're going to see four major truths. If you're taking notes in your bulletins, here's the way we're going to break this down. Number one, Jesus is Lord over nature. We're going to see Him display that. Number two, we're going to see Him display that He's Lord over the demonic. Number three, we're going to see Him display that He's Lord over disease. And number four, we're going to see Him display that He is Lord over death. And so Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Again, page 562 in the Bibles that are there around you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. Luke 8, verse 22. Read along with me. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were endangered. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled. Saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water. And they obey him. And so again, number one, this, uh, who, who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord over nature. And so understand, we're talking about the fact that Jesus is fully God. That he's God in the flesh. But also, Jesus is fully man as well. And so in his humanity, he gets tired. Like, and not just tired, I mean, he's slap war out right here. He's been just on a just a crusade of just healing people and and teaching just on and on and on and on and on. And he's absolutely worn out. And so they get into a boat to make their way across the lake and he falls asleep. And you've got to be some more kind of tired to fall asleep on a Galilean fishing boat. Right. And, and, and he's not it's not the sleep that you get like on an airplane where you're just in this like, you know, time, this uh, unending dozing off and breaking your neck and waking up and breaking your neck and waking up. He's out like it's raining. There's a storm. He's getting splashed. The boat's filling with water and he's, st he's still sleeping. So he's exhausted. Until and I want you to note this. Professional fishermen who've made their entire living on this sea are terrified. They've never seen a storm like this. They don't know what to do. So they come and get Jesus. And so you've got this crazy storm. You've got these professional fishermen who are absolutely terrified of this storm. They come running to Jesus. Jesus is sleeping. He, he wakes up. He rebukes it. And it stops instantly. The sea turns to glass. And the disciples who had been afraid of the storm are now a bit afraid of Jesus. That's why they say in verse 25, and they were afraid and they marveled. And it's not fear that he's like going to harm them. It's just 
a fear and respect of that amount of power. Like if you've ever been at the Niagara Falls, what just the you're not scared necessarily, but that amount of power is just deserving of a reverential fear. It's just so huge it can't really be described by anything except fear. And so Jesus then turns to them and asks them, where is your faith? And I don't think that this is Jesus like scolding them. I think what it is, 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 is Jesus like, why are you surprised? Why are you shocked? Like, don't, don't you know who I am? Don't you remember the withered hand? Don't you remember the paralytic let down through the roof? Don't you remember the leper? Don't you remember the centurion's servant? Don't you remember the widow's son? Like Jesus has been building his case and he's doing it here. I'm Lord over nature because I created it. Like the whole reason it responded to my voice is because it's heard it before when I created it, when I called it into existence just by speaking. I mean, this is what the Apostle Paul is kind of kind of picks up on in first in Colossians. And I covered Colossians up. Chapter 1, verse 15, actually verse 16. For by Him, speaking of Jesus, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so he 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 speaks and it obeys because he spoke it into existence. The, the, the Lord of creation is still Lord of all things, Lord over nature. And so in his humanity, he's exhausted, but in his deity, I think he. I think he took them in a storm on purpose. I think he did. I think he knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it on purpose. And he planned to fall asleep. He planned for this major storm to come. He planned for it to be so bad that it would absolutely terrify the disciples, and that they would come running to him, and he would step forward and tell it to stop. And I think he did all of this to help bring the disciples to the point of realizing Jesus isn't just some miracle worker we've been seeing do some stuff. He's not just some good teacher, he just shut a storm down with a word. Who is he? And Jesus is answering with his actions as he's going to continue to do through the rest of this chapter. I'm God. That's who I am. I'm not just some moral teacher. I'm not just some miracle worker. I'm God in the flesh. And so Jesus is Lord over Nature. There's not one atom in all of existence that he's not sovereign over. And so notice this then. Because that statement. There's nothing that he's not Lord over that he's not sovereign over means even our difficult day. Because who led them into the storm here? Not a hard question. It's Sunday school. Jesus. Jesus led them into the storm here, right? 
And he didn't do it because he's malevolent. He didn't do it because he's angry and they had sinned. And so he's seeking to punish them in some way. No, no. He did it because he loves them. He did it because he knows that very oftentimes faith grows the fastest in the midst of a storm. It's true for the disciples. It's been true in my life. It's probably been true in many of your lives in here. And so I don't know what storm you may be going through. I don't know the waves and the wind that may be crashing in around you. And I don't know what it is that Jesus may be wanting to do in your life in particular through it. But I do know this, and I want you to notice this, because not only did Jesus lead them into the storm, but He went with them into it. He was in the boat the whole time. And He's in the boat with you the whole time. And so take hope. The one who has the power to call a storm to stop in a moment, is one who holds you in His hand even as you're going through the storm. Take great hope in that. Jesus is the Lord of nature. But not only is He the Lord of nature, He's also Lord over the demonic. He's Lord over the demonic. Look at verse 26 with me. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Like, this isn't a fight. Jesus gives permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's the power of Jesus. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes got into Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so again, Jesus is also Lord over the demonic. And so he, Jesus just showed that he's Lord over nature. He, the boat arrives, he steps offshore, and immediately he's met with this demon, and he's warred over the demonic. He's just going to show it immediately. And so we were talking about this this week in the office, and we talked about how a lot of times when we read Scripture, we kind of point out to you guys, hey, you know, this 
section here, this isn't a horror story. Don't be freaked out by this, except this time it is. Like This is the horror story. You've got a naked man living in a cemetery who they've like lassoed and hogtied before and put in shackles, but he's broken them in his demon possession. All right? And when it comes to the demonic, just real quick, I agree with C.S. Lewis that there's one of two mistakes we often make when it comes to the demonic. Some Christians live in this false idea, this mistaken idea that there's like a demon behind every bush. And so if anything happens in your life, a demon did it. A demon caused this. Well, maybe, but maybe just someone, you know, made a mistake, you know. And so you've got some people who live with this idea just continually in fear of the demonic. And on the other side of the coin, there are those that live with the mistaken idea that there's no such thing as the demonic. That everything, you know, is just chemical or medical or mental and, or it's all tied back to this incident or this thing that happened in someone's life. And I'm not denying those things. Those are legit things. But we don't need to deny the idea of the demonic either. Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's real. And this is true whether it's real, it's true whether it's whether demons do it openly and overtly, like we see in the gospels a lot of times, or like you hear about in the frontier areas of mission work around the world. Or if they do it more secretly and covertly by corrupting societal structures like they more often do in the West. And so as I was reading this, one thing that kind of struck me though, and I want to call your attention to it, is Jesus lets the demon speak here. And that may not stand out to you at first, but Jesus has already met a demon once in chapter 4. And he didn't let him talk. He started to talk about, I know who you are, you're the son of and he says, be quiet, come out. He doesn't let him talk. But here, Jesus does let him talk. So, why does he let him talk here? And I'll give you a hint. Where is he right now? Where is he? He's not in Galilee anymore. Where did he go? He went across the lake into the garrison. So, he's now in a Gentile area. So, what you see in the Gospels a lot of time is is, is When Jesus is in a Jewish area, when he's in Galilee, he does not allow people to talk about who he is as the Messiah because they have a mistaken idea of who the Messiah is going to be. They think the Messiah is going to be some geopolitical leader who's come to free them from their Roman overlords. And so he doesn't want to get get confused before it's time for him to, you know, make his triumphal entry and, and be sung with hosannas and then a few days later crucified. But when he goes into a Gentile area, he lets people talk. And so he's in a Gentile area here and he lets the demon talk. But when he's in a Jewish area, he doesn't. And so he's in this Gentile area and he's going to allow the demon to talk. And if the, if the disciples have not yet gotten who Jesus is, this demon just absolutely lays it out for him. Verse 28, he says, when he saw Jesus, this is the demon, he cried out, okay, and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I beg you, do not torment me. And so the demon here, or really demons, because he calls himself legion. Legion in the Roman army was 6,000. We don't know if that's necessarily, but we know there was a lot. The Bible says there were many. Anyhow, these thousands of demons in this guy are absolutely terrified of Jesus. They know exactly who he is, which is what you always see. The demonic always knows exactly who he is, who Jesus is, and they are always terrified. And so, if you're, if you're newer to the faith, or you're just kind of exploring Christianity, or want some clarity about what Christians believe, Christianity is not a dualism where you have good and you have evil and they're equally opposed and we're, we're on Jesus' team and we're hoping Jesus pulls it out in the end, but we're not really sure it's going to be a close game like App State and Tennessee. It's going to be really, really, really close. We beat Boston College by three points, so I have no room to talk. So, But I'm just saying it's not like who, who's, it's a close game. No, 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 no. It's not a dualism. The Bible teaches that God created all things including Satan and demons. They were originally angels. And they were created perfectly. But they got this idea that they could mount a coup against the infinite, eternal, almighty, omnipotent, omniscient God of, of, of all. And God's kind of like, please, kicks them out, curses them, and ultimately, they'll be thrown into hell, the abyss, and suffer eternal conscious torment for eternity. That's what's coming to them. As well as for all who don't trust Jesus. And so this demon here, all right, he knows that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God and that everything the Father has, He has. This means unlimited power, unlimited goodness, and therefore unlimited hatred against evil and wickedness against these demons who've been tormenting this man. And so the demons are terrified of Jesus, and they're terrified that He's going to throw them into hell right then and there. And I couldn't help but think that if demons are that terrified of hell, how utterly horrific It must be eternal conscious torment. And I say that to you not to try to scare you, though we should be scared of hell. But I say that to you not to try to scare you, but to rather remind you of the grace and the mercy and the kindness that God has shown us in that Jesus took our place like Hell is a place where God's wrath will be poured out on sin. And Jesus on the cross absorbed God's wrath for, for my sin, for your sin. He absorbed it. He absorbed hell on the cross in our place as our substitute. That's why I often say on the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if He lived your life. That's what He did. He poured it out on Him. So that he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' life. You get his righteousness. That's his kindness. That's his mercy. For all who will just believe. It's open for all. 
you just believe. And so Jesus in His Lordship over these demons here, He allows them to go into these pigs. Right? In verse 32, He gives them permission. And they go out of the man and they go into the pigs and the pigs instantly uh, go insane and run into, um, you know, rush off the hill and they drown themselves. And some folks get all wigged out over this. And they're like, Jesus sinned here because He killed a bunch of pigs. They're pigs, people. We eat them by the thousands daily. They're called bacon. It's good. But imagine if this had happened at a dog park. And he had sent the demons into, especially in Nashville, people would have gone crazy. They would not be praising God. But I think what's going on here in, you know, with the pigs and dying and all that, because it is, you know, it makes you ask the question, why, why didn't he just like, poof, make them go away? Why didn't, he let this, why didn't he let the pigs die? I think what he's doing here is I think he's both highlighting and condemning the herdsmen and the city's love of money over the love for this man who just got healed. Who, in fact, just became a believer because the word for healed there in the Greek is the same word that's used for saved. And so rather than being overjoyed that this former um, demon, you know, a former demoniac, he's formerly possessed by demon, and rather than being overjoyed that he's now clothed and he's in his right mind and he's free of the demon, rather than being overjoyed at that, they loved their, ba- their, their, their pigs and they loved their money far more than they love this man's soul. And if we'll check ourselves, I think we would begin to find that in our own hearts, the way we live at least, though we wouldn't admit it. The way we live shows that we love a lot of things a lot more than we love our neighbor's soul. Our personal time, our family time, which is great. Our, our heritage. Our jobs. Our football teams. We love these things way more than we love our neighbor's soul. We wouldn't write it on a piece of paper in that order. We just live it in that order. And so because they loved these things more, and they didn't want Jesus to interfere with their lives, they asked Him to leave. But watch what he does with the, the man, verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so he goes and he's talking. Now in a minute, we're going to get to this guy named Jairus and Jesus isn't going to let him talk because they're going to be back on the other side of the lake. But here he tells him, go home and tell how much Jesus has done for you. And folks, that's our job as well. And he tells him to go home. He didn't tell him to go off on the mission field. He tells him to go home. He tells him this right where he's at, your neighbors, where you work. Where you shop, where you play, you go tell in those spheres how much Jesus has done for you. That's our job. That's our job to testify to the goodness 
and the kindness of our Savior. And so Jesus is just laying all this out. All these things are happening in quick succession. He's just laying out that He is who He says He is. And so He's Lord over nature. He's Lord over the demonic. Number three, Jesus is Lord over disease. Look at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him. Alright, so He just went back across the lake. So we're back in a Jewish area. For they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had, a, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, health care was not good then either, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all, the presence of all the people, why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so Jesus is Lord over disease. And, and this particular miracle really highlights, I almost want to do a sermon just on this, highlights the love and tenderness of Jesus. Now in the midst of it, Jairus doesn't like it because it's taking time. He needs to get to his daughter. She's dying. Every second that's wasted is another second she's closer to death. But Jesus, in the midst of it, He takes His time to stop. And not only heal this woman, but also set her free from the ostracization that she has lived in for 12 years. Because she was... You know, in, in the Jewish uh, law, you know, she, she was unclean. So not only has she had this issue and this pain for 12 years, but 12 years of not being able to go into the temple. 12 years of not being able to touch another human. Can you imagine not having a handshake, not having a hug? Not 12 years. 12 years of not being able to go into someone else's home, 12 years of being a social outcast, 12 years of being rejected and wondering, has God rejected her as well? Because that's where our minds go when difficult days come a lot of times. And Jesus ends all of that in an instant. That's why He calls out, who touched me? Not that He didn't know. He knows all things. right? So it's not that He didn't know who touched me. It's not like He's some sort of just like, um, you know, magnet, and you touch him, and you get zapped, and you get healed. He, he, a lot of people touched him, and they didn't get healed, and a lot of people didn't touch him, and he, they did get healed. So it's not the touch that matters. What matters here is her faith. And not just a nebulous faith, her faith in Christ. Like everybody's like, my faith, my faith, my faith. I don't give a rip about your faith. I give a rip about who your faith is in. That's the difference maker. 
Who is your faith in? And so Jesus calls out, who was it that touched me? And not because he's trying to be critical of her, but because he's trying to, like he's showing his kindness and he's setting her free. He's letting everyone know she's healed. She's clean. She's new. She's beautiful. And he calls her daughter. Only time Jesus ever calls anyone daughter. Just a term of endearment here. So that everyone knows she's good to go. And so Christ's lordship and Christ's authority and Christ's power, they go hand in hand with His goodness and with His grace and His kindness towards those who often deserve it the least. That's what the gospel is all about. That's just who Jesus is. But in the midst of this, Jairus doesn't really care because he's, he cares about his daughter. He knows that every second that goes by is another second closer to his daughter passing. And as they're still standing there, look at verse 49 with me. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And so Jesus, just as Jesus has showed that He's Lord over disease and, and over life, He's now going to show that he's, he, he's, he's Lord over death as well. Verse 50. Verse 49. Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 50. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what happened. And so the word comes that, that she's dead. And Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And this isn't Jesus telling him, again, to think positive thoughts. If you believe enough, you know, if you've got enough faith, then she won't die. She, if you just believe hard enough, that, that kind of thinking is devoid of reality. It's devoid of what the Scripture teaches. Bad things happen, and no matter how much faith we have, we can't make the bad things unhappen. But Jesus can. And He doesn't always do it. But sometimes He does. And one day, He will. One day, Jesus will return and all the bad things that have happened will come all untrue. All that has gone wrong will be made right. Everything will be restored to the way God created it to be in the very good beginning. It will be a return to Eden as it were. The Bible is not a story of beginning, middle, end. It's beginning, middle, new beginning. Everything will be restored. That's coming. But even here, 
Jesus gives a sample of it. Child, arise. And every single one of us who are believers in here will hear that one day. Child, arise. And so he tells Jairus, we just saw the lady healed. He tells him, just believe. Believe what? Believe in me. Again, it's not about the faith. It's who the faith is in. It's in Jesus. And so Jesus is telling Jairus, believe, trust, watch what I can do. And so friends, I'm not sure, again, kind of what trials you may be facing this week. I'm not sure the difficulty that you may be facing. But trust Christ. A simple yet unbelievably profound and life-changing statement. Trust Christ. Trust Him. I mean, each of these miracles that we walk through help us highlight Jesus' Lordship for us, showing us who He is, that He has power and He has authority over all things because He is God in the flesh, that He's Lord over nature, that He's Lord over the demonic, that He's Lord over disease, that He's Lord over death. And the fact that God is the God of all things and in control of all things means that nothing happens outside of His hands, outside of His plan, outside of His control. And while He may lead us into storms, He rides along in the boat with us into them. And though we may die before He returns again and restores all things, we are still held at all times in His all-powerful loving hand, a hand that can stop winds and waves with a word. He holds us there. And He will take care of us always. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's who He is. Our loving Lord. Praise His name. Let's pray.
Father, thank You. Thank You for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank You that You are our loving Lord. That You hold all things in Your hand. And nothing happens outside of Your control. That You never leave us nor forsake us. And that things that happen in our life as tragic and misunderstood as they may be, humanly speaking, they will still, as eternity rolls along, redound to your glory. Somehow, and some way. This is your power. This is your might. This is your. This is who you are. You are good, and you do good. Fathers, we come to be reminded through the taking and through the observing of the Lord's Supper. Be with us. And remind us of exactly who you are. Our loving Lord. We ask in Jesus' name.